0: And I guess we're kind of getting into this now, my relationship with social media, but I really wasn't like online at all Um, for almost for like most of my life. I was on the computer a lot, but I wasn't like super into social media um, in the various forms. Like, I mean, I guess like my first interactions with it were like MySpace and LiveJournal. I certainly had those as like a person that was like in (laughs) the like... You know, I was in bands in high school and it was just like how you communicated, but I didn't really post like I had a live journal. I didn't post. I'd like post my band's flyers or whatever, but, um, I was always like very nervous to post. I thought it was, I was embarrassed by it. I don't was know a lot why. It work. Yeah. Yeah.
1: I'd well, really I mean, this stuff is humiliating anyway, to like <laughs> have to present yourself and like create this personal brand. And I've also realized that there's a reason for spokespeople and like being, a public speaker and doing promotion is its own set of skills and being an artist is its own set of skills and being a writer is its own set of skills. So yeah, there's a need for a division of labor. And one of the things that the platforms managed to collapse is that now everybody has to be their brand ambassador and an entrepreneur and a creative genius. And that gives certain affordances to like a lot of weird sociopathic behavior that is not necessarily good for society or creative life. And the people who rise to the top are like, just like insane narcissists in a way that was not possible for previous generations, you know, but this is, but now we're only seeing this after like so many years of these systems being in place. But like, if you go to 2012, it was like, you could just kind of discover your friends through like people you may know and like group shows. And there was like a peership of like, oh, there's 50 artists spread out through, you know, three to four different cities who are all invested in this like niche set of topics. And it was kind of great to like have a banter and a discourse. And and now it's like everything is just lost in the algorithm. And like the scale is is enormous and unmanageable. Absolutely.
0: I mean, that it is very interesting to have watched what has happened to social media since then. Did you have a small crew or in like the MySpace LiveJournal era, a few dozen people that you follow closely? It was only, I only was like, engaging with people I knew. Um, So I think I was starting to say that I really wasn't like, an internet person. Um, I didn't really care about it. I I definitely like watched I was kind of like, you know, I've always been a bit of a nerd. So I was like, always online looking at stuff. I was like way into torrents and like, just, you know, up way too late at night looking at bad websites, that type of stuff. But um, As the early social media would roll out, like I didn't get on Twitter till like 2015 or 2016 or something oh, like wow. um, I never social media wasn't really like a big part of my life. Only it only became part of my life later on as like a necessity and almost like kind of a experiment with myself. I think I I told you, but because I noticed that it was like something that was becoming essential, you know, and then I my my main era of posting was actually like pretty brief and aggressive But before that, I would like really wasn't like not a big part of my life. Um, I don't know about you. Well, in the art world, it's a little bit,
1: there's a little bit of a different incentive because I feel like as soon as we started posting on social media, we immediately got rewarded with IRL shows that were then like selling artworks through galleries. So the idea of monetizing a following was, was really different at the time, but, um, Yeah, you were mentioning before, when you were trying to break into this pretty opaque, very exclusive field, that there were certain rewards for people who had over 10k followers. And then that created like an incentive for you to get a new platform, just to have people like, respond to your DMs and give you opportunities.
0: Maybe I should just like, kind of go from like, start to present with my career, the best that I can. Yeah. How did you get into it? Probably the first thing I wanted to do... was be, be an MTV VJ when I was a kid no. like that was like <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay. but like I can you know, see that
1: for you actually
0: well but like and you know I don't really it was one of those things where it was like as young as I was like I don't even know why I wanted to do that but I saw obviously I saw VH1 and MTV and I was like this is awesome um you know who didn't think that um yeah yeah and I liked the music videos so at the time I was like dude like I want to be I want to be a music video director like I was drawn to it was like the first thing I engaged with that was like creativity, I guess, when I was a young I was like pretty young when I started watching that stuff. Like younger than a lot of people. I didn't really understand a lot of the things that were happening in the music videos, but I would like sit there and watch VH1 and I, I wanted to do something like that, like music videos, because that was like the coolest thing at the time, right? Like Yeah. I don't really um, like
1: superheroes.
0: Yeah, it was like the coolest thing you could do. And People loved it. I look back on it now and I think what I really liked about it, like it's not even like the music part. I, I think I liked that there was like this demand for it, this like short, short form of entertainment, like a quick, you know, two to three minute story attached to a song that's really cool. And like, you know, in the craze of MTV, like everybody wanted music videos. Um, It was super sick. It was like this convergence of culture that's gone away. It's really fun. So there's job, job number one gone, like (laughs) job not exist (laughs) anymore. Um, But I, you know, I always like music videos. I always uh, so. So as soon as I got old enough, I bought like a high eight camera. I was probably like 13 or something and just started like classic, like filming stuff with my friends and learning to edit and did that through most of high school, like making videos, my school had like a TV program, so my friends became like the people who make like you know dumb little videos with. And then I eventually went to film school. It was all, you know I, I never really kind of questioned it. It was like the only thing I liked to do, and I just assumed it would have to be my job. I wanted it to be my job, but I also didn't have a backup plan. Like I didn't, like, I didn't know. I literally couldn't imagine like doing anything else. Um, I don't think I had like another skill set. Um, So I went to film school and then, like I said, I exited, uh, graduated, did some internships, became a PA, uh, started like working up the ranks of like working on commercials and stuff like that. What year is that approximately? 2010. 2010. Okay. Yeah. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to do is direct commercials too, weirdly enough. Um, hmm. I was always drawn to like short form things, and because I mean, in the '90s, like commercials were cool too. They were really funny. <laughs> they were really yeah, cool. That's actually right. Like, like some of them. You know, it's not like I wanted to direct vacuum commercials, but
1: it was transgressive too. They were kind of like yeah.
0: edgy, and it was like, yeah, yeah, it was a different type of thing. And huh. you could make a lot of money doing it. But when I was a kid, I was like, oh, that would be. And Chicago's a big advertising city. It makes perfect sense. I was like, yeah, I could do something like that. And it would be fun. So I was like working up the ranks of working on sets, things like that, Uh, working really hard, working every day. Like I honestly, like a couple of years of my life just like completely disappeared from working on productions. I was like a PA working like every single day, um, which was kind of fun, but a lot of work. Um, Eventually, you know, I I mentioned that producer giving me that piece of advice. It's like, dude, you're not going to, Nobody's going to promote you to director like it's going to work against you. Actually, (laughs) if you have any desire to do that, you should go do it on your own. Um, So I started to do more side projects. That was like, dude, honestly, and I don't mean to like go full like psychotherapy mode, but I don't know what your school experience was like, but a weird thing that was not taught to us in film school is that you actually have to go and do the stuff. Like they teach you all the theory, <laughs> they teach you all the theory, but like, I'm telling you, I mean, granted it was different back then. Like now you can like shoot in 4k on your phone, but right. but right. And you know, the professional tools required really opened up like the accessibility of like who can buy afford them. But so it was a little different, but that being said, like a lot of my friends, like we graduated from film school and like didn't own cameras, didn't have like editing software. We weren't like making shit. It was weird, like, and they, and they, like, I don't think my school did a good job of t- telling us to be, like, out making stuff for fun. It was all presented as, like, this professional thing that, like, somebody's going to ask you to do it one day. And that extended to even, like, writers and stuff. Like, I don't think I knew anybody that was, like, just, like, doing stuff for the sake of it. Um, somebody had to tell me to do that. Like, that producer was, like, dude, like, you don't, you don't even own a camera. Like, you should buy a camera. I can start making stuff. That's Somebody had to tell me to do it. It's so weird. It's so obvious. But that... um,
1: Sometimes it's the startup cost alone, which is, you know, it was like prohibitively expensive to get started in this stuff when we graduated. Now it's a little bit easier. But yeah, you do have to be producing work on your own like you do actually have to make the stuff you know it's but i I think i'm I'm sympathetic to the schools as well because you you're churning out so many graduates like there are people who have to go into other jobs in that field and not everyone is going to be the film director so I'm, i'm understanding in that capacity but uh yeah yeah to actually like be actively making a portfolio it's very common when people graduate in the first year they do a few projects and by year two they've completely
0: stopped making work yeah. Very common. If I had to teach a class in any kind of creative field, that would be like the first thing I would tell everybody is like, just start fucking making things, good or bad. And, learn and I have to making. tell myself yeah. that all the time. I have to tell myself that all the time. Like, on You can't accident.
1: theorize the work in advance because as soon as you start making it in the studio, it's going to change, right? It's like you can't actually think through the process. Like the creative process, you have to learn by doing.
0: Yeah, good or bad. I, I don't know. I think there's like this weird notion that like... I, I especially with like new graduates, like they're waiting for somebody to come up and like ask them like, Hey, like I heard you're a writer. You should like, would you write this? Would you film? Like that's never going to happen. Like nobody, cause nobody wants you to do this. Um, yeah,
1: you that's just like patiently that's the- wait in your studio and then a curator comes knocking at your door <laughs> before you've made anything. And they're like, I think you would be good for this. Do you want to try something?
0: That's do you want to just try it out. Right. That's the other thing that I was noticing. Um, is that like, I think our generation has like a a creativity surplus where hmm. too many of us became artists and creatives and like, you know, in the case of film, I was talking to somebody about this last night. In the case of film, I think we've all seen somebody like make a short film, one of our friends, and they're like begging on social media practically for people to watch it like yeah. desperately um, or like a band, you know, like. It's, it's not strange to see somebody like begging their friends yeah. to engage with like entertainment that they made, right? Which is like... It becomes to me, a it's, task too. It's, it's, it's become a chore and like... I mean, that's like the opposite of what <laughs> entertainment is for. Um, when you think back, like go back to... <laughs> I got to like, watch this for my friend. <laughs> it's like when you go back to like not even that long ago, like the invention of motion picture and people would like like crowd into theaters to watch like you know line up in a nickelodeon to see like five seconds of like a horse running you know like yeah yeah (laughs) or a train driving towards the camera um and now there's so much of it that it's like it's just hard to get people to watch your stuff and that's always been like very discouraging to me um so so how do you uh yes we have our whole
1: generation is like we're all creative individuals and we grew up in a very individualistic era and like there's kind of two forking paths from that it's either to be an entrepreneur or to be a creative and at some point there are creative entrepreneurs and like yeah but so this this draws people out onto social media this like the desire to reach an audience, right? You have to like create a platform, create interest for your own work, which is what they're trying to do. It's like you're kind of, you're out on the street, and you're handing out flyers for the comedy show, but you're just doing it in like the public square on the internet. So how do you in this period of like, you're disenfranchised working in the conventional film industry? Do you take to social media
0: to then publish your own projects? Or how do you start posting? I was like, of conventional mindset for like how to, you know, oh, and and also, like, I never wanted to be like famous or anything. Um, I've never like had that desire. I think there's a lot of like people who go to the internet that have wanted to be famous or something like that their whole life. I've never. I should be clear about that. Like, I've never um, wanted that. That was like never my goal. I didn't want to be like the next Quentin Tarantino. I always just wanted to like, I guess, like make things that I liked and that people liked or be a part of it. I was like always happy being behind the scenes too. Like it was never about like self-promotion or anything. I just wanted to make things that I thought were exciting and cool and that people liked. I think I got to LA and wanted to start doing music videos to kind of build more of a portfolio and was grinding super, super hard. And it's, it's difficult. Like you hit a lot of roadblocks. You can't just like, even like, Emailing if you if you get like hooked up with a band or like a manager, it's hard. Like, you know, these people weren't getting back to me. There was like all this red tape. It's hard to be taken seriously, even if you have the best idea in the world. Like, people don't really take you seriously. Um, and this was like around the rise of Instagram. I had one like that my friends followed, and like one of my friends, Matt, taught me how to use it and like told me what hashtags were. We were kind of like goofing around with it at first by like spamming the hashtags like this is like really really early um and he told like i he started doing it he's like if you post like anything and like use the right hashtags like you could get a bunch of likes on this picture automatically by like bots or whatever Hmm. and so we started to like try to do the funniest combo of hashtags on like the picture of like anything um when we had like zero followers um just to kind of like you know exploit the platform a bit that was yeah. how I got onto Instagram is just to kind of like compete with Matt to decide of like <laughs> literally posting like a picture of like something on the street, like not even like it wouldn't be an exciting picture. We just use the hashtags. Um, so I was kind of familiar, but didn't really use it. And then as Instagram sort of grew, mind you, this is like, you know, it, it's it's hard to think back for anybody that's like younger and like was it came of age in an era of Instagram. It's hard to imagine The time before that but you remember it um it was very it was very different i mean that
1: kind of stuff was possible back then even but if i can set the scene for a second we're looking at an, an overproduction of creative professionals right there's a lot of people competing for these jobs the field is flooded with competition and then there's this network design that allows for these certain exploits so you start jamming together different uh hashtags and stuff like that like like uncommon combinations. You're kind of drawing audiences from one side and also from another. And you're essentially growth hacking on the platform to get a leg up for your potential audience.
0: I wasn't thinking that then. That was just like why I got on it in the first place. It was kind of amusing. We're on like a road trip. We're actually like shooting some Coca-Cola like video or something. Was it a game in the beginning? Was it like? Yeah. Yeah. Like we were like filming some corporate video for Coca-Cola like some behind the scenes interview with magic Johnson or something. It was really funny. And we're in, this was like right before I moved to LA, we're in Santa Monica, like filming this. And, um, he like showed me how to use it. And I was like, Oh, that's funny. Like, like it was a funny exploit, you know, um, and got on there. And then, you know, I think as I was going, I eventually moved to LA, like I was saying, and was running into, I don't know, just like kind of frustration. I was, I'm sure everybody experienced this Um, just wanting to do something and it was hard, like simple as that. And then I meanwhile started to see these people like early influencer types, like kind of just people that don't really do anything at all. Like they don't make anything. They're just online and they're kind of cool, right? Like they have followers for, for who knows what reason. Um, This was like kind of new to me at the time. I mean, a lot of things were new to me. I was like very midwest coming to LA, you know. And I saw like like the very early iteration of Instagram and like the early stages of influencer marketing and like like before there was even a, the word influencer, right? Like I just I noticed these people that amassed like a large following on there were then taken seriously regardless of what they did and if their following really mattered. Because meanwhile, I continued to like mess with Instagram, right? Like we're, I, I saw how like, oh, you can just like post these hashtags and bots will like your pictures. Or I like found on Fiverr that you could like buy 20,000 followers for people. And I didn't do it for myself, but I would like buy them for my friends as a joke. You did. <laughs> yeah, because <laughs> it would cost like $30. And like, uh you know, this was like all of us were using like once again, this was like pre-influencer. Like, I don't celebrities weren't even like using this app yet, so it was just funny. Like, I mean, it was funny. I would like buy one of my random friends like ten thousand followers, and it would be really annoying for them. Actually, it would be like a prank. Get flooded with bots. Yeah, yeah. And so I always like I didn't take this app seriously. So when I started to see these people like um, with a following on there be taken seriously and treated as like these mini celebrities, which is now the normal. Um, and have like doors open for them, like opportunities given, I was like, Oh my God, this is such a joke. Like these followers don't matter. Like I could buy them. I could buy them. (laughs) Like, it doesn't mean that they did anything. So I was getting frustrated with like just the way things work. And I was like, dude, I should like, honestly try to get 10,000 followers and like, maybe that will lead to some shortcuts um, well, to, to we get myself were slow to leg like, up, uh, uh, yeah, I think we were slow to this, but I think in terms of
1: casting decisions, this was how this was how it was always explained to me at the beginning, and I don't think the gravity of this situation really set in until many years later. But um, let's say, for example, you're casting a film and you're looking for somebody to fill the role of this character, and there's two equally talented actors that are trying out for it. And one of them uh, has 5,000 followers, and the other has 500,000 followers. In the eyes of the marketer for this film, that's an additional 495,000 people who are going to receive the promotion on behalf of the actor when the film comes out. That ability to monetize the following actually becomes very valuable down the line. I guess it was easier to ignore them in art because we were basically dependent on the like collector whims of a few dozen rich people. But uh, once you get into like dynamics of crowdfunding and and advertising in general, then that like click through rate, the CTR is actually super, super important. Yeah, it it introduces all of these other weird incentives into a creative field that are not necessarily about the art and are just about the reach. That begins to shape creative life over the past decade and I think a pretty dark and weird way now. And at the time, this was just like in the field of culture, you could advertise to people. You could like make a film and then sell it to the 500,000 people who follow this actor. But then it begins to influence politics in a weird way. And like, oh shit, social media is actually like, it's remapping a lot more than just the cultural sphere, right? Like culture wars is American politics now. And so it's all subject to the same insane race for scale.
0: Well, yeah. And like, it's funny to think back to like this time that I'm describing, uh, brands weren't on there. Celebrities weren't really on there. Politicians would absolutely not be on there. Like it was not a serious place. It was not considered to be serious. In fact, like just a year or two before, I think Instagram was like basically a filter app. You know, it really wasn't like social at first, if I remember correctly. That's why when I was first told about it, I was like, my friend was talking about like, trying to add me on there and i'm like well it's not like for putting filters on your pictures like i didn't it did not compute to me and um you know all of these things changed and it's the new normal it became the new normal very fast but the idea of a politician being on there or anybody was was silly right like (laughs) yeah yeah um this was like not you know these weren't serious places same with facebook i mean the like was pretty new i think it's it's hard to imagine social media before the like count, but even that was kind of new. When you got
1: these followers, so so now you've been. I'm not sure if I want to say shit posting, but like it was a. Oh, it's like for sure. Well, it meant a different thing at, in like 2012. It was like a different <laughs> shit posting. Now is very different.
0: Yeah, but you're doing I mean,
1: something. You're doing some type of a like art creative experiments by jamming together these hashtags and growth hacking.
0: Yeah. I was, does that um, then yield opportunities down the line? It, it definitely did. I mean, I was, I started doing it. I was pretty depressed one December. I was like in my dad's basement for Christmas, just like in not leaving the basement type vibe (laughs) in the (laughs) Chicago winter. Um, I was doing a similar thing. recently. So texting my friend and like, just like i don't remember what was bumming me out but you know that's when i decided to do it cuz i was like dude this is so fucking stupid like these people you know these like clout demons in la get like whatever they want and it's just so fucking pointless and you know there's no inherent value to this following yet but i was like i could probably get 10000 followers if i tried this and is like, the thing that I always liked about you is that you actually do hate this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> I'm very kind of, cynical I was like, about it. And well, that's I was like, why I, well, because I always—that's why I was approaching it from like I was like, dude, this is stupid. Like most of it yeah, is like, yeah. like I, I got on the app because like I saw that you can like post like hashtag photography hashtag India hashtag like smile yeah, like, and yeah. then you would get instantly it would like be instantaneous likes on the picture immediately it was like because there were these bots right um and they still exist but they don't work in the same way um or like well i don't even know the new exploits i'm sure there's a ton but in in the beginning it was just kind of a game and yeah i am cynical about it but that's why i decided to do it because i was like dude this is this is nonsense like I, like I could probably i'm nobody i could probably get ten thousand followers in a month
1: And like, that's what I told him. And so your success, your success in that field then
0: showed its hollowness and its vulnerabilities. You're following the exploit. That's why I I thought I'm like, I had like these various like LA socialite characters in my mind. They weren't bad people, but they kind of like their existence bothered me as like a representation of like pure, like the modern day popular kids, I guess. Right. But even more Mm -hmm. hollow than that, Um, just people who like had like clout, I guess, you know, like random like, lifestyle people. Yeah. Like early, like clouded socialite people. Um, and there's modern day iterations of that, but people that don't make anything, they're just kind of existing to exist and be cool and go to the party. Unlike
1: the musicians, unlike the directors, they didn't actually make a creative product. They were kind of just around like and they, they were, were the product having breakfast.
0: Yeah. Yeah. This is the kind of, this is the era where you would like post your salad to Instagram type shit. Yes. And then these people were giving, being given opportunities or taken seriously yeah. um which bothered me so anyway i mean i've always made like dumb funny things on photoshop that i'd like text my friends i started like just making like dumb content kind of like the stuff i would text my friends i would just like post or like repost things that i found and like stupid videos that i'd find online and like edit stuff um i was just like just started like posting stuff that i thought would get traction and it it, <laughs> it did you know and This is like really, like a lot of this stuff is really cringe now for sure. Like, like I'm sure it's archived, but like, yeah, I was just like posting stuff that I thought people would like. Um, and I was making, I I enjoyed it. It was cool. Like, um, I got the 10,000 followers in a month. Like, it was um, not super hard. Um, but then I kept going because by that point, I started to enjoy having this audience, you know, like who actually wanted to see the stuff that was being made, even though it was stupid. A lot of it was really stupid. Um, All of a sudden I had this audience and would have like an instantaneous group of viewers for like whatever I'd make, even if it was stupid. But to me that had much more value and was more (laughs) rewarding in a way than like working really, really hard on something like a piece of art and then like begging people to see it like debasing yourself (laughs) like begging them to see it yeah it's like and it's at the end of the day it's entertainment like they should be it is a platform for entertainment they're the lucky ones to be entertained yeah or like any any form of art or at least like film um and music it's entertainment you know like well this is what i always used to talk for the audience
1: in the news feed there is like You could spend a month or two months working on this masterwork, this incredible painting that's like the greatest thing that God has ever put on the earth. And then you post that, next to it you post like, I don't know, a funny meme or like your brunch and the brunch gets like 10 times more likes than the painting. And it's like, well, how do I value then my creative contribution in this space if the things I think are really meaningful sink in the algorithm and I'm clearly incentivized to do the other one? So starts to become very frustrating, but I've always appreciated your like your cynicism on it. Do you think there was a gravity to after you get over the, the hump of 10 K like you've kind of growth hacked your way up to it where you were posting this stuff and like, you know, you, the springboard of bots help your account to grow. But then once you have an audience in place, it's kind of easier to build another one, right? So there's something like an early adopter benefit that our generation of uh, creatives were able to get that the Gen Z kids can't get. Like kind of as you're describing, The example I would give was that there were students at the School of the Art Institute at Chicago, SAIC, who had more followers than Pace Gallery in 2012. (laughs) Pace Gallery is a multi-billion dollar business. This is like blue chip artists. This is like, if you're on the roster, like you are set for life and generations of your family are set for life because of your estate. So uh, the disparity between those two things of like these BFA students versus the hegemon was, was pretty substantial. Now, if you're Gen Z and you enter into this space, Pace Gallery has fucking millions of followers and you have like, what, your dozen friends that you met in school, you can't bootstrap a scene. You can't really get your foot in the door. So uh, although we didn't necessarily know it at the time, millennials, roughly our demographic, were this like unintentional early adopter of social media. And because we had a following in the beginning, we could later monetize that. But it took many years to really learn that was going to be the process. And I mean, now it's like a huge part of it. But did you see like growing past 10K that that early growth hack, those early adopter benefits made it easier to get from like 10 to 100? It's kind of proportional as it expands.
0: Yes, I think it was. By the way, I immediately noticed like a huge difference in the way I was treated in the world when I got those 10. It was like very funny. Um, People would respond to your emails.: Well, I mean, you wouldn't even need to, which was awesome. Um like, for instance, Dylan Francis, who I eventually made a show with, but he was somebody that I saw that was like, you know, he was very big uh as a dJ at the time, and but it was also like very funny. And did sillier stuff. And I had a bunch of like these funny music video ideas that I thought would be good for him. And I was trying for like a year to get them in front of him. And we had mutual friends. We had like, you know, I knew at this point I was like working in the space a little bit. So it wasn't like I was cold emailing these people, but I just was getting nowhere. And then I kind of gave up. But then as soon as I probably like a month or two after I started doing the shit posting, I saw him at a party and he recognized me and he was like, Oh dude, I, I like the stuff that you post You're Jack. <laughs> and like, it was very, wow. and I'm like, I was like, Oh fuck. Dude. I'm like, I've been trying to send you these video ideas for like a long time. And he was like, dude, like, call me, like, let's talk about it. Um, wow. and, like, gave me his phone number and we ended up, um, doing the music video for need you. And then, I mean, we have, you know, we've made a show together and done a bunch of stuff, but, that was like an example where I was like, oh, okay, like that took two minutes. I just like ran into the actual person and he took me seriously over for the stupidest reasons, right? Like literally because I post garbage. Like I post like the dumbest things I could think of and like that cut through the red tape. Um, And there's like a lot of other little examples of it. But I mean, yeah, I mean, when I moved to LA, I didn't know anybody. I had like one, two friends and they're like, people I knew in college that I wasn't even that close with at the time. So, you know, it was a good way to it definitely change things. Um, I did resent that it uh, <laughs> opened doors a little bit because it's so stupid. It's so stupid, right? Like, but it, it worked. Um, but then the funny thing is that it's like, I didn't just like stop the posting and then continue to do the work. I ended up liking the posting and kept doing that, um you know, I don't know for better or for worse, who knows, and like ended up starting the podcast, and like now I'm in the game, so to speak, of like content creation, but that was that was never my plan, you know, yeah, it was interesting I, I mean, I don't even know if I made the right decisions um, It's funny, it's something I reflect on a lot. I had a similar type of
1: experience where at the time this was maybe it was two thousand I'm going back a little bit, maybe it was two thousand. 10 or 11. And it was before social media really, really took over and people were still in the world of photography. They were interested in these blogs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, my work had been, I was basically just producing these still life photographs in the studio. And uh, I curated a show and the show had a bunch of other people that I had noticed from being in this like blog ecosystem of artists who are doing similar things. And I thought, okay, I'll just bring them all together and put it into a physical group show. And I'll like borrow the space above my studio for the weekend. It was actually these guys who had a music recording studio. So it wasn't even like a real gallery, but they had some white walls that we could use. And in the promotion for that show, a gallery saw my work and then saw the show. And pretty much immediately after that, I think it was within it was like within five weeks, you know, it was like the show went up in November. And then I had the studio visit in December. And they're like, we want to give you a show. It was like just it was immediate. And my understanding of how this was supposed to work all of this red tape and the kind of like bureaucracy or the infrastructure, like all of those things, it was supposed to take years, like years of practice of doing that. And this was like the first thing that I had done that was like circulating on these what I thought were pretty casual blogs. You know, I didn't think that nobody had a career doing this even. It was like everybody worked a full-time job and then did this weird hobby art project on the side. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then these blogs were just like really enthusiastic about it and they would post the stuff. Um, And then there was like a gallery in like a really serious location. Like it was on fucking Madison Avenue. It was next to Gagosian. It was like, what, what the fuck just happened that... I went from this little blog circuit to like a serious gallery that is selling people's work and then they live off of it. And it was really surreal, but, uh, that doesn't seem to be happening anymore necessarily but i there there's this window there's this window where it's like you could kind of get in and it was this thing that felt very casual and then all of a sudden it was like oh shit this is real now i'm like actually in the room and
0: you it sounds like you stumbled into the benefits of it you know that's the
1: thing. yeah yeah i guess so whereas like well now i mean i also fell out of it too yeah you know i mean because now it's a very
0: different now it's a very different model but well, you've ended up being like the opposite of what <laughs> like you got that- shadow banned. It's like, <laughs> yeah, like I entered these platforms like to try to like boost myself. You actually ended up on accident. Erased being from the exact opposite. <laughs> it's like you entered it and they erase you. Um, yeah. Mute you. Um how do you feel about posting now? Like, do, I mean, oh, I'm so you're not you're it, not
1: doing it, yeah. But uh, well, it doesn't seem like there's the same I don't know opportunity for like transgression or excitement or like the same kind of niche weird internet subcultures popping up that there were a few years previously. It's not, yeah. I,
0: I'm not feeling. It. <laughs> I'm exhausted, but um, you know the platforms changed. Like I think I was saying, I ended up really enjoying being on there and I had this like captive audience. And then I I started to experiment with like storytelling on the platform uh, as opposed to just like random memes. Right. Like then I started to try to do like these like longer form weird little like stunts or like narratives. Um, If anybody's like followed the things I've made, there was like this whole saga where I I ran this like fake account for Whole Foods in Silver Lake, uh, Los Angeles, where it was like, I mean, it made the news at the time like a lot because I was alleging that Kim Gordon was like bit by a coyote. And for some reason that got picked up by mainstream (laughs) press. But it started as like a joke to make one of my friends laugh because like this Whole Foods got built in silver like it was like a big deal. Um, But it turned into this whole like narrative um, where it was like this, you know, the fictional social media manager at the end of it was like, hiding out in the bar tenants of the trees, like speaking in like a native American language and like, like losing his mind and like communicating telepathically with like the alpha coyote. And like, there was like these hunters. It was like, there's all these characters in this world. And like the account got very big. I did that. Um, whole food shut down. I did this thing where I became like a pro, a pro skateboarder, like sponsored by Jinko. I think people saw that there was a lot of like these sagas. Um, and, and it started to be really fun. It was like, I didn't expect it, but it was like my, all of a sudden I got to like do the storytelling that I enjoyed with like filmmaking, but on these platforms, which I found to be really fun. Um, and it was, it was really cool because you had like this live audience engagement and especially with the stuff that like, you know, I was telling a, a piece of fiction on there, like layered over reality Yeah, with, in the case of the Silver Lake thing. Like I was like trying to blur. You it were with, doing fake news. Yeah, I was... You were spreading disinformation, sir. But it was really fun. Um, and, like, I was trying to blur it as much as I could. Like, I mean, the the whole point of that account was, like, about these fake coyotes that were supposedly, like, terrorizing the guy who runs the social media for this brand new Whole Foods. And um, they were becoming, like, increasingly powerful. And, like, you know, the guy was also losing his mind. But... For instance, like, I would see, like, one day I saw, like, I think probably, like, a homeless person, like, smashed in the front door of, like, Silver Lake Wines, which is across the street. It was, like, it looked like the Kool-Aid man, like, ran through. Just, like, the outline of a body through. The, the glass. Wow. Yeah. And so, like, I took a picture of it, like, driving by. And then, of course, like, posted it on the account, like, saying that it was, like, the coyotes that, like, got <laughs> broken there and were drunk. And it was, like, and then I, the cool thing was that, like, people who would follow it a lo- along with this, like would then be in the comments like adding to the story and you know and like mm. i would notice that there is like this really really cool cycle of people engaging with each other where it'd be like the people who have been following along and like know it's a joke but are pretending pretending it's real to convince like the newcomers who aren't sure if it's a joke so there'd be like people in the comments yeah. being like be like i saw it i saw a coyote run out of there and like eventually people like weren't sure like what how much of it was fake? How much was real? You know. See, this is like th- th-
1: this era of social media was a lot of fun, and I really enjoyed these types of like they're kind of like soft hoaxes or pranks, and it was pretty, you know, it was really natured, yeah. And but you could never do that today, right? You could never do that today because like when real malicious actors get into the space and then they create fake accounts that then spread fake news under fun. somebody else's name. Yeah, It was
0: just like, this was a very pure time period. Um, And like, as corny as it is, like my enjoyment of posting ended the day Donald Trump got elected, maybe a little bit before. And it's not because I'm like, you know, a blue haired lib who hates the orange man. It was just like, I mean, it was getting bad leading up to it. Right. It was getting bad leading up to it. Like the, the joy of that frivolous posting. But I think like, the mood of the country changed at that time. Everything was then presented as like life or death. The stakes were so high. Um, regardless of what you believe, everything was contextualized in that way. Like, you know, I the, the women's march was happening. Like, I remember that. Do you remember the tone of like those first yeah. six yeah. months? It was presented like the apocalypse. Um, and it, yeah, you just couldn't be like doing the same type of posting. And then the alt-right, kind of took over like everything changed and there was no room for like this sort of like mindless apolitical goofing around yeah um and maybe that's for the best but yeah that's when it everything changed well there are problems of scale right there are
1: problems that happen in scale because it's like when it's you me and our dozen friends and we're just shit posting in jokes to each other i mean even if it's like you know a few thousand people or whatever there's no real risk for harm but as these things get bigger Um, You could say something that begins as a joke and then through the context collapse of the internet when it reaches a million people, there's going to be one person in that audience that takes this thing super, super seriously. And that created all of these other, you know, what we described before as being exploits. These were then like major vulnerabilities these are like security vulnerabilities where people would then get hurt at the other end of it and something that started as an innocent joke or like a transgressive shitpost that was then taken up by a real political group that wanted to hijack your messaging and transform it into something else that you never intended but all of that starts to happen as these the scale for this stuff gets bigger and bigger i feel like in the first few years i working on jogging working on tumblr there was this idea of the accidental audience that um through virality you could kind of trojan horse this messaging right you could you could use the viral infrastructure of the internet to spread a message that was maybe not intended by the people who owned these platforms but you could kind of if you are a savvy enough actor and you understood cultural codes and you knew what would spread like you could kind of send this messaging and um you could find like a, a way of like hacking the, the system, right? To to the benefit of the people who are receiving the message, right? Spread positive messaging through the system. And my feeling now is that although that still exists, and I've spent a lot of time in the last few years talking about the importance of counter-messaging and having like a progressive left uh, presence in these spaces and like using social media for good. I still I still think all of those things exist, but I'm kind of feeling like it's like a ten to one ratio, you know, where like the negatives of this thing just so outweigh the the positives that like maybe um, there's a reason why it was so easily taken over by these like reactionary goons and just like these like really uh, uh, miserable forces in the last few years, and so as we move out of this era of the internet, and maybe people retreat into discords and more like smaller community based activities, that um, some of those problems of context collapse, where you post something that's a pseudo ironic joke, or it's just a little bit of an edgy meme, uh, or it's like a a bit of fake news, but it's like really harmless. And then at scale, this thing totally runs wild and takes on another meeting, uh, another meaning. Maybe it's actually better if we have these like smaller, more local groups and chat rooms, and uh we just avoid some of those pose law context collapse type of issues,
0: oh absolutely um you were talking about like what happened in two thousand sixteen twenty fifteen like the context collapse and like how certain political individuals like kind of took over you know it's it's often framed as like the alt right like took over the internet. I think you know. A lot of it is that like everything just became politicized, right? Like I, when we were, I'm sure it was the same for you, but like politics was so far removed from anything we engaged with at least when I was young. And, and I, that's the most striking thing to, when I listened to your interviews with um, high school kids, um, like these like politogram kids. Yeah, um, which I love by the way I love listening to those but it's always so striking to me hearing them talk it's kind of amazing but in a way tragic to me in, in some sense um, like that they're they're having to engage with it at such a young age um, because you know and I was part of the same group that would have been in, interested in politics you know like the art kids that hung out at the gazebo or whatever and like smoked cigs <laughs> <laughs> yes i was literally like one the of weird kids. the weird kids uh yeah but so we would have been those kids but that was not uh there was tribalism but not about um politics you know um i don't it dude it wasn't even discussed i i i remember it being like it would be cringe right yeah. to care about like what george bush is doing the most would be like there was like the rock against bush albums at Hot topic, or whatever, if you remember those. That was like the extent of politics. I think there was also a consensus that there was basically the situation was terrible,
1: but there was nothing you could do about it. Right. So to get really worked up and to care about it, to like be an activist was like that was kind of cringe because you knew that the work was ineffective. You know, it's like all the possibilities were foreclosed. And so our generation just assumed like this perspective of nihilism.
0: Yeah, I mean, I guess like for most of us, probably it was like 9-11 happened and then we were just in this war for, you know, as we came of age and then my friends yeah. started joining the army and going over there years, like years, years, years later, you know, um, that was like, I mean, I'm sure you probably had the same thing. I think we we're of like the same age, but like, it's funny to have that happen in middle school and then you're like graduating high school and your friends are going to fight the same stupid war. Like that was yeah. like the extent of the political reality. Um I don't think it was like fun to think about. It was just like, yeah, this is fucking stupid, like (laughs) that we're still doing this. Um, But, you know, it wasn't really political. And then I think in 2015, 2016, everything became politicized. Um, That was the first election that like politicians were all fully on social media, fully. 2012, there was a little bit of it. They started using YouTube, things like that. Early use of Twitter, I think Barack Obama started using Social media more to get his White House message out, um, and you know we would see him. And and they they were celebrated for it. Yeah, no, I mean he did a good job. They targeted people so effectively. Yeah, they did. They really did. Um, But then, you know, as soon as every single candidate was on Twitter, I think it politicized everything. And um, and now there's also
1: the possibility to change stuff too. You know, it's like because we grew up in like a post political era where we were just nihilists because it was literally fucking impossible to get anything done. And the Democrats and Republicans basically agreed on everything and political activity is totally ineffective. But uh, things start to open up around that period. And so when you look at the people who got super into politics and were politicized as a young teenager, it's because they had this broad horizon of political possibilities that were just foreclosed to us at that age you know so when I was 13 even if there had been memes there was not a political reality that they could affect yeah I kind of understand where these kids came from and and the way that we liked musical genres and the way that we liked uh facets of creative culture it's like all of that just flowed into these political identities yeah yeah so it's the kids who are at the gazebo and in 2000 you know 15 they were talking about ideology and politics but in 2005 they were talking about i don't know i think i was talking about film photography or some shit
0: sure it was that or like i mean it was the same drama i assure you but about like the dumbest things for me it was music you know but it was like all of these people that are basically similar the straight edge hardcore kids like not getting along with like you know the the metalheads or whatever <laughs> yeah, um yeah. and like the people who listen to emo music but then there was like the fake the posers and then there was like the real emo kids and like the juggalos you know all the weirdos like, genre disputes yeah it would like be like these this insane tribalism where like there'd be like three people per tribe in your high school <laughs> like literally like these clicks of like there'd be like, you don't even have enough to people. form a band No, yeah it'd be like no not even like we to, don't have a bass player <laughs> we have to recruit the, someone from another genre for the, at least for like hardcore and like metal it would have you would have to expand to other schools like the the hardcore metal scene would be like the 12 surrounding high schools and like yeah, there's a lot of driving yeah. involved. But. I literally had to fucking do that. I had to get a bass player from the next high school over. Actually, no, that's pretty funny. That would be the disputes. A lot of like, you know, Oh, he broke edge. Uh, mind you, we're all like would be virgins anyway, you know, yeah. like oh, <laughs> like, he, he had sex with his girlfriend. That's breaking edge. Like, you know, just stupid. I remember like, that. Yeah. like, you know, it was like everything was about the music subculture. So I think ultimately it's the same, but I think at 2016, like nothing could be examined outside of a political framework at a certain point. And then that continued on. Everything had some kind of political significance. And if even if it was intentionally not, some would be applied to it. And, you know, that's just the way things were. I'm not here like complaining about it, really. I I really don't want to sound like a person, you know, like some crusty dad that's like, oh, everything is right wingless left wing this, you know, that's not what I'm like. I'm not one of those people that's like, oh, you shouldn't tune out, you should tune out, you know. But I think everything became politicized to the point where it was just hard. I mean, uh, for comedy, for all forms of entertainment, it was just, it just changed. Well, that's, so that's kind of the problem where we are
1: now for art, for film, for comedy, for all aspects of the cultural sphere. It's it's very unclear what impact culture really has onto politics. So when everything becomes political, it kind of, well, one, it drains like the meaningful activity from politics because you just sublimate it into the sphere of culture. And we talk about, uh, you know, relatively meaningless disputes and symbolic values and like, what does does this image of a frog mean type of shit? Mm -hmm. Um, And then, uh, you know, the other part of it is that the role that culture did serve in shaping politics was, uh, there were like truths that you could say in that space, you know? So, um, sometimes someone says a statement that is factually not true, but it communicates like a higher or or a deeper truth, something that uh, gets beneath the surface, you know, and this is like poetry, this is artistic license. And, um, when you have to have everything abide by the same terms of service that, like, a comedian and a journalist need to share the same space and the same medium, and they're subject to the same rules. Then the journalism begins to become very outrageous and clickbaity and sensational, and the comedy has to be very contrived and very serious. And you know, these are different things for different reasons, they serve different roles. Yeah, so comedy will be best served more so in private spaces you know this is this is maybe a better thing and um mm-hmm. but uh i i think that it's been pretty detrimental to culture and these problems of scale really can only be resolved by returning culture to more local small community things and moving the political into a mass scale movement and, and otherwise um you kind of drain the efficacy and the purpose of both of those spheres. Big politics, small culture.
0: I mean, it was probably forced to be that way. And, you know, I think another aspect of it is like everything becoming political, even if you were trying to be apolitical or create something that was not political, that was political, right? right. That was like viewed yeah. as like, like during that era. If So, even like doing something ignoring I, it, not ignoring it is it. almost louder you know yeah, like yeah. to be like during this time of like great chaos i mean and to be fair like things were absolutely fucking crazy um hard hard to promote your mixtape during be to be, to be doing yes. like yeah like <laughs> promote the mixtape or like posting like m- random memes and stuff it's like that's sending a message too, like that for sure political. for sure but then there's a flip
1: side of this too where if the media can put us into a perpetual state of chaos where every week is the end of the world then nobody can produce culture anywhere and that's so what it was yeah and then i think it would, <laughs> take, like a com- yeah.
0: it would c- take a complete rejection of that right like i don't and i don't know if that's there but that's like what you were saying of like you know going to these like private spaces I've always felt like, I mean, I've I've said this to students
1: and I've said this on the podcast many times. So I'll repeat myself for a second, but I always felt like my political engagement, I didn't need an identity in terms of like a genre, whether I was like a punk or a mod or a vegan straight edge, whatever. Like I had my cultural identity through the art that I liked and I had my interests. I knew what those were. And what I needed from politics was the stuff. I just needed healthcare, I needed to go to the dentist, like I needed a mass broad organization, a broad coalition to like get the material stuff that you get through politics. And I didn't need it to satisfy my cultural interests. Like my cultural interests were already these small scale niche, you know, whatever photography thing or whatever internet thing I was into. And so it was very easy for me to separate the two. And now we're in a position where these things are totally reversed and people are trying to pursue a cultural affiliation through their political activity, which is like destroying both at the same time. And um, yeah, I think the internet, like the arc that we've seen in the past few years of like the story of both of our creative careers has been navigating these enormous problems of scale and terrible incentives on social media platforms. And it seems now I'm kind of reflecting in the past, I don't know, a few months and, and I'm very aware that there's, you know, younger people that listen to this program and that they're following the syllabus and they're kind of going through their education that I went through maybe a decade, uh, previous. And, um, Things are just very different for them, you know?
0: Very different. very different for them now. Yeah. We're kind of bouncing around, but, you know, going into doing this conversation with you, I knew that one of the themes would be, for at least for me, is like ad- adapting. Yeah. It's like, and, yeah. and for me, it was like the platforms weren't quite there yet, but it was like adapting. It's always been adapting to platforms. Like for me, I always just wanted to make something and like, you know, have my ideas heard, have people... To make something, I mean, I guess, like, I I, I still don't know what I want to do, like, when I grow up. <laughs> even still? <though> <laughs> <laughs> when you like, grow yeah, up. I mean, I still don't really know. I'm still kind of figuring it out. But, like, I think ultimately it's, like, to make something that I like and then it's to be, you know, seen by people, understood, and enjoyed, you know? So that's what I like doing. Um, it doesn't really matter what medium. And it's always been a desperate form of adaptation. And the problem that I've noticed is these platforms continue to change. They're run by these companies. Right. And like adding the algorithm to Instagram was a major, like a re the real algorithm. Right. There was like, Oh my God, it's unusual. I remember, now. I remember, I remember noticing it when they added it. Like it's one of those, um, like I don't, I wasn't really following like tech journalism, but it was like, I immediately saw the change. Right. Like you felt it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that, and then now, increasingly altering every single platform to be completely algorithm driven. To now TikTok, which I am not on there, um, and I really, really don't like what it is. Honestly, I mean, it's funny to me that like I made you know I made an entire show called Like and Subscribe that was like my dark comedy of like I I envision like the worst possible scenario for influencer culture. This was that show was actually an idea of a stunt that I was going to do online. Um, The premise was and this was an absurd premise at the time like this was silly. Like when I told people about this they're like oh that's really silly. But the joke was that me and like I was going to get a couple other people who kind of like you know were funny on the internet. I was going to get Nicoletti actually was one of the people who was down but I was going to one day we were going to say that we got this new manager um, and they're really cool. They're going to be managing us. And like, they actually got us this sick house and like, we get to move into this house and like, just make posts. Like we don't have to do anything besides like post and we're so stoked. And then like, you know, over the next few months they would see us like, like it, it would be hinted that we're like locked in the house and we're being made to do this stuff. And like, we'd be start to do these like really weird, like ads and like, our health would be deteriorating and then like occasion you know ultimately <laughs> eventually like at midnight i would st- like you know like one of us would post like from inside a closet like selfie video like help fuck help me fucking <laughs> and then like it would like you know delete it like a minute later and it was going to be it was a going to be a real life saga um that i was going to do on instagram eventually it was you know able to be sold as a show um called like and subscribe but you know The joke of it was that like, what if these influencers were put into a house where they just made content and like some adult made money off of it, which the joke of it? Yeah. And a a part of that was like, uh, especially lampooning like the early, this is pre TikTok, but like these like skits that were popular on Instagram where it was like, you know, like when Bay catches you texting another girl, and it would be, you know, like these oh, like, top right. text skits, yes. which is yeah. like all TikTok is now. Yes. Yeah. But all of this was um, absurd at the time. And now it's just our reality. Um, it's funny. It's it just things move so fast. Even in creating that show, I had to change so many things because I would like think of the most absurd possible and then <laughs> thing it to happen. happen. <laughs> and then it would happen. I would have to change it, you know? Oh, like, crap.
1: Um, yeah. It was it's it's beyond satire is kind of the thing. It's like you can't anticipate what the trajectory is, but it's just it's so insane, self satirizing that it's like almost impossible to exaggerate because it's just it is as bad as it can get.
0: Man, like, I mean, there was like honestly working with the network um, with that show, like there's a lot of things they wouldn't let me do. Um, I'm surprised some of the things they did let me do. Like Brandon Wardell's character is like this little boy who's like actually a man but he's still pretending to be young in order to like he was supposed to be like a maddie b raps type who's like secretly 30 but is still pretending to be a kid and also like you know all the jokes about like going to brian singer's house and stuff they let me do but um you know there was a lot of things we had to change that like there was going to be this like you know soundcloud rapper type character that was supposed to be like you know it was gonna be very implied that like it management was like enabling his drug use and like, Oh yeah. You know, but like then that became too real. I'm not, I don't want to reference like specifics, but like, yeah. like that was absurd uh because like, you know, all of a sudden like these SoundCloud rappers got more famous and like started dying. It just right, happened. Right. Like, I mean, it, yeah. but it, so I had to change that. Like all of these things that were silly very quickly became real. And no matter how insane of an idea, I would come up with, it would become true. And like almost everything in that show has become true. Even like, you know, social media evolved itself to kind of match uh, what was absurd. Now. I mean, I I'd like to think the show holds up in some ways, but um, you know, if, if you do a good job with that stuff, with uh, that type of satire, it will predict the future. You know, I think with like the TikTok of it all, I it's the opposite of what, Appealed to me in the uh, the origins of things, where now the company controls the algorithm and controls the popularity, and then people end up creating for the algorithm, right? Where my right the appeal uh, w- of this was always creation influencing the trends, right? Now people are the the trends are decided either by artificial intelligence or you know the the puppet masters <laughs> of TikTok. I don't even want to think yeah. about like 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 what decisions are being made manually by people, but and then you see these people creating for the algorithm, and then ha- has these very surreal results, like that TikTok voice that everybody uses, right? Yeah, like these weird, weird, weird side effects, um, and it moves so fast, and like you know these things become arbitrarily popular um it's it's this crazy vicious cycle that's like the exact opposite of what originally brought me into this and and made me enjoy using social media
1: in the beginning of this stuff you could you could create a weird thing that would then accumulate an audience and now the dynamics of those platforms are kind of uh, draining the creative possibilities out of it. I think about this in terms of the TikTok dances where like your body is literally animated by this stupid meme dance that you have to do to participate in the attention economy. It's like that, that to me is like a, just symbolically a really powerful demonstration of like the loss of creative agency that you have to act out this silly dance. Like it's literally in your own motions. You no longer control your own body. You are animated by an algorithm.
0: Yeah. Very, and like the, very dark the way the way people who even have an audience now talk about TikTok is like, oh, I have to get on there. They like, oh, to, my man, just yeah. making it's me get coerced. on there. But yeah. And like, you know, maybe that'll go away. But the other thing I don't like about it is that in, in some way they're democratizing clout. But I don't Demo- think that's the way it should be. I mean, that's the brilliant thing about it. That's why it's so popular is that mm-hmm. like everybody gets a chance to be it is like Andy Warhol's like final prediction, right? Like, but to the furthest extreme, like everybody yeah. gets to go viral on there one time like, yeah. yeah, you know, everybody gets to have a viral video no matter what it is, um, is kind of like why it blew up. But to me, I think like one of the biggest problems with social media is that like, you know, I don't think most people should be posting or feel the need to be doing it. Like after I sort of, you know, it, it became part of my job, I was And I saw, you know, the apps evolve. I was always like really bothered to see like, you know, somebody from like, I'm trying to think of an example, but like, you know, somebody from my hometown who's like, you know, married and like has a kid, like doing like influencer voice or like talking, like captioning their photos (laughs) as if there's like an audience, you know, of uh, outside of their close friends. Like
1: they're doing promo for the local restaurant or something. Or it's like, like just, just have a relationship with your
0: family. Yeah. Just like, like, yeah, you don't need to be doing unpaid advertising work. And like, clearly, like, getting stressed by these apps. And I mean, that's like yeah. a huge thing. Everybody knows about that. But like, you know, feeling the pressures that would be applied to a professional poster. And to me, it's like, I, I started to notice that the people who, you know, had the least to gain on these apps were like the most stressed by it. And that always bothered me because it's just like, look, you guys aren't even like in the game. Like, right you you're a dentist like why are you stressed about your post yeah you're already making good money you have a career i have to do this this. like i have to do this like you know i'm here dancing for these people you know figuratively but you know (laughs) i'm here tap dancing for an audience like you guys i have to like you don't so like why stress yourself out like why care about like how many likes your picture has or whatever. Um, Yeah.
1: Well, I think I have a frame for this conversation. I think that the millennial experience of social media is something that's going to be very unique to us. Mm -hmm. And when we look back at this time, uh, the Gen Z kids are kind of at the tail end of this. And I think the Gen Alpha kids... God only knows what that's going to turn into. But uh, the adoption of social media and the way that we did it of like being these creative entrepreneurs and like personal brands is going to be uh, very anomalous in like, you notice the Gen Xers never did that. The Gen Z kids did it to a degree, but a lot of them are just opting out because... Pace now has much more followers than the BFA student. And I don't think the gen alpha kids are going to do it at all, basically. So we're going to look back at this weird era of like millennial narcissism and creative expression as being like the only generation of kind of cringy adults that we grow into who are like totally obsessed with being these little micro celebrities. And aside from that... I just, I think this era of the internet is going to be a little bit over and maybe that's a good thing. You know, maybe we learned the drawbacks of it and we can evolve uh, socially and politically into like, okay, we don't need a mass culture. We need a mass politics and a micro culture is actually preferable. And then we get all of our jokes Uh, our exploits and our hoaxes and like, you know, those strong social bonds of like, I'm on the inside of this joke and it's funny. And there's no harm that like somebody down the line is going to get unexpectedly irony poisoned or whatever else, you know, maybe that's just a better solution for politics and culture on the internet. What is next? What are you excited to work on? Because when I look back, I see how the influence of these platforms and the opportunities and affordances at the time really shaped the things I could do, you know? Uh, yeah. And now we're in a different era of it. So what do you have coming up creatively next? What are you excited to do?
0: Well, Josh, uh, the answer to that will probably be pretty disconnected from what we've been talking about, but I do have a new project. I'm really excited about. Um, it's called other world. It's a new podcast. I'm doing, that's entirely about the paranormal and unexplained. I remember uh, you telling, Oh, wow. Okay. I'm glad this finally went through this. Um, I know it's, has, it's, is not informed really by, uh, any of my past experiences that we've been talking about, but, um, um, I love the Halloween episodes. Uh, those have always been my, my favorite. I'm sure you get that all the time, but okay. Been, other is it world, when they out. Um, I believe it's gonna be October 3rd, but, oh, wow. um, for those who don't know, I've interviewed people about paranormal experiences they've had um, for uh, like four years, maybe five years now. Um, And I'm finally going to be doing a serious thing with it. Um, And I'm trying to take a really interesting um, and new look at the paranormal. Um, Cause I'm not, I think a lot of the stuff out there right now is very nerdy or um, unhinged. I think a lot of it is like, you know, it, it's really hard to fact check stuff like that. I'm trying to, I I don't like things that are completely unfact checked to the point where it's like absolute nonsense and you have to be a huge nerd to get behind it. And then I also don't like, we'll save this for when I come on again, but I hate like anti-paranormal people that are like Reddit atheism people that completely write it off completely. Like those sure. people drive me insane. Um, I'm trying to strike this interesting balance with it where, um, I'm taking like an op- open-minded approach and I'm interviewing people that are, I, I deem to be credible about things they've experienced, um, that are unexplainable, you know, and I'm only putting out stories that I genuinely believe, um, or am puzzled by. And then, and some of these stories also aren't completely paranormal, but they have a paranormal element. So I've been, do I've been going like nonstop working on this, uh, very excited about it i'm gonna be putting out about i was originally gonna do six episodes to start but i think it might be closer to 10 starting in october um and then we'll see it's completely self-funded possibly a network one day but for now i'm just gonna put it out and hopefully make it big and figure out how to make money with it later because i have big plans that yeah. really
1: sounds perfect and I see a very clear arc actually of um someone who used to propagate uh hoaxes like soft conspiracies now has a healthy skepticism about long form stories they find on the internet so
0: it seems to be a pretty coherent arc from one to the other. Well, yeah, I guess yeah, you could say that and um and I am you know, my goal with this is to get people to um come on board as believers or at least being open to it you know because let me tell you like five years of interviewing no no like quote-unquote normal people like the, so far most of these have come from like my own audience so I'm interviewing yeah. people that are pretty similar to me most of the time they're people who have never talked about the thing ever like a lot of these people have like never told this story and you know the funny the funny pattern I've noticed um, between these is that people often say like, well, I don't even believe in ghosts. I don't believe in like whatever it is they're telling me. I don't believe in UFOs and then proceed to tell me that they saw one. Yeah. So like, yeah. But I don't believe, it. but like, I don't believe it though, you know, like, but they saw it and like, they don't think they're hallucinating. Um, it's a really fascinating era area that I enjoy being a part of um and like researching and and it really getting into like the cognitive dissonance at play with these people who experience these things because i do believe them i don't know what any of this I is what yet yeah but i do believe you're them. like 80 percent pilled on this stuff i'm very pilled on a lot of it that being maybe 75 percent a lot of i mean i'd say like 90 percent 95 percent of stuff out there of people that say that they experience something paranormal is nonsense. Um, unfortunately maybe 98 percent, but there's a lot that isn't every nonsense. meme is two percent true yes that's and um saying. and i think you know i'm kind of rambling but if there's one theme to this show it's that it's about these people that experience something so otherworldly you know like that's the name of the show but they they really do experience something that completely shatters everything they know to be true in the world and like when you're faced with that i mean the ramifications of seeing something that defies your understanding of physics and reality like to believe that to be true is something that happened to you makes like you know it it alters everything like if you for instance seeing a ghost it's like okay is god real is hell real is heaven real like what am I doing? Like what am I doing with my life? Everything. It's way easier instead of facing that and like all the things that's changed, it's way easier to just be like, you know what? I'm gonna forget I saw that. I'm sure. gonna forget I, I'm gonna forget that thing happened. I, and I've I've noticed that a lot of people do that, you know? It's because a Pandora's box. It's, it's hard, it's hard to just go grocery shopping the next day. <laughs> <laughs> and I, dude, I've dude, I've had I've only had like a small brush with it myself, um, personal experiences, but same thing, you know, like I've experienced some shit I could not explain um that was scary. And like Will we be able to hear about this on the podcast? Maybe. I mean, like I lived, I didn't know it was a haunted house, but my mom um lived in a haunted house, um, we found out, like, you know, it was basically like out here what I thought was my sister making food at night. Like I would hear her get up, go to the kitchen, like make I would hear the mm-hmm. items she was opening up. Like I would hear her open like the loud Costco cookies, you know, right. and like like <clears throat> like that noise. And um eventually my whole family talked and like we all revealed that none of us ever go in the kitchen. Like we all thought it was like the other person and like, we're all terrified <laughs> to go in the kitchen. Um, and then of course, like then knowing that, you know, we had to keep living there and it's just kind of like a reality. I think it was pretty wild. I, I just had to put it out of my mind like because what else can you do? Right. Like there's more important things to focus on than like the noises in the kitchen. Same with me. I just kind of was like, I mean, I'm still kind of on the fence about this stuff, but you could tell how excited I am well you just you just did it you said I don't believe in this stuff but then well here's the thing like, that I, I mean because what are you gonna do I mean what what are you gonna do right like I can't right. do anything about it um I'm just a a man right like I can't I can't talk to the <laughs> these things like I don't want to um it's easier to just uh go on with your life you know well i'm
1: glad that you have a healthy skepticism about this stuff because oftentimes the narrators for these stories are very unreliable terrible yeah maybe maybe you are actually the most uh appropriate person to go and like seek out these uh the two percent of truth that is contained in the meme
0: yeah um october 3rd around then i think people are really gonna like it and um I would like to if you know if you're open to it I'd love to come back on because this is me all self-promotion and I'm gonna need like I'd love to yeah we can do I'm gonna um, be, I'm gonna be begging. truth
1: episode oh. two or something yeah yeah get back to I'd the be classics
0: begging for clout um <laughs> but yeah I'm gonna be doing all sorts of stuff within reason that's the thing I don't want to I don't want to go do a lot of this myself that's the that's the funny thing about this like a lot of these like places and things like if you really believe in any of it, like why would you go there? Oh yeah, yeah. Why would you ever go there? No. no. <laughs> um, yeah,
1: yeah. I, w- I will happily explore conspiracies from right here at home, but uh, I- I'm not going to travel to go and see the uh, the UFO field uh, anytime soon.
0: Yeah, it'll be cool, and you'll like it. It's not just ghosts; it's um really anything unexplained. So, um, very excited. Otherworld um stay tuned it's not announced really anywhere yet but eventually it'll be pretty easy to find yeah well it's a um, nice
1: easter egg for the end of the episode so maybe uh i guess by the time this
0: comes out um if there's oh, an nice. active link I'll, I'll put it in there yeah absolutely otherworld yeah i mean you'll see me posting about it a ton so yeah. check it out it'll be out in a few days in that case so hope you guys enjoy it Well, cool. Yeah. Jack, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: It's great to see you. And uh, we'll have to do a follow-up chart of truth style episode for the proper release.
0: Josh, it was great to talk to you. I'm a big fan. More again soon.